As I mentioned in the first service, this is a very humbling experience um, every time I get to come up here and do this. It's, uh, it's something that's not in my wheelhouse and my everyday comfort zone, um, but it's something that as we are called, uh, the Lord calls us to obey, and we're simply called to take steps of obedience, uh, and it's very humbling. Um, and it's very just real and raw to get to share uh, with you guys this morning. So thanks for the opportunity. <clears throat> Let's just uh, open up in prayer, and then we're going to dive into a couple of these main points in Romans. Father, we thank you for uh, just what you did in the first service. I thank you for the hearts that were receptive, Lord, and I pray that you'll do the same now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll simply speak through me. I pray that you will open up the hearts and the minds of each person sitting in here. I pray that your spirit would be thick, that it would move, that it would be real, that your word would become alive and transparent to us in this next little bit. We love you. Amen. Uh, Romans is a book for me that uh, really since I started Walk on the Lord, it became my favorite book. Um, it became one that I frequented um, very, very often. I studied a lot. I was able to lead um, Bible studies of teammates out in spring training through it. Uh, we took eight-week series during Extended, and me and a bunch of the guys were able just to dive in each week. And um, so when we were dead and the, the staff was unpackaging uh, uh, this series, he asked if I would be willing to, to share in a book that, that I love and adore, and I'm very excited to get to do that with you guys. There's a... Uh, there's about three main points. There's a fourth we'll kind of briefly touch on, but uh, there's notes and stuff in your bulletin, the scriptures. We're going to pretty much use all the scriptures, all going to be straight out of Romans. Um, we're going to break it down and then kind of give some, uh, some life lessons based on it as well. So first things first, Paul, this is one of the first books Paul writes um, over the next couple of weeks as we continue. The books that we will go through are uh, majorly written by Paul to either people or the churches of that time. And the people that he was speaking to in the book of Romans was the church that was in Rome, and majorly uh, it was the Gentile people. Uh, the Gentiles were considered kind of outcasts, lesser thans than the Jews, um, and Paul writes this scripture really directly towards the Gentiles. The Gentiles was really a term that was coined to refer to anyone who wasn't a Jew. So all of us sitting here today uh, majorly, I would assume, uh, would all be considered Gentiles. So Paul is specifically writing this letter directly to us. God's word is relevant of all times, of all people, and this is what uh, he is sharing not only to the Romans, but also to us um, today. A couple of the main points we're going to go through there in your bulletin is God is who he says he is. To live according to the Spirit, I am no better than anyone else, and now we are not justified uh, through the law. So Starting out, grab your pens and notepad if you guys are taking notes. Uh, we'll dive right into it. Um, the first point I want to touch on is that God is who he says he is. And before we get deep into the teachings that Paul writes, it's important to know and fully believe and understand who God is and who he says he is. Uh, for us to, to believe and take heart um, of his teachings, it's important for us to believe and know who God is. And um, in chapter 1, Paul writes, uh, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, 
so people are without excuse. Genesis talks about how in the beginning God created everything, the light, the sky, the ocean, the animals, the, the vegetation, and the mankind to rule and, and uh, have dominion and rule over the land was all created by God. And it's important that we grasp and understand that everything that we read, everything we experience, and all the teachings are from God and believing who he is. Uh, after each day of creation, God looked down on what he had made and said, this is good, and it's important to grasp the understanding of who God is. And so often I think we get caught up in, in getting frustrated and wondering why we don't get to experience God more, and, and we, we seek so many things to try to find God in them. And when Paul writes simply that everything that has been created has been created in a way that we get to experience God and that we have no excuse not to believe and understand who God is because of what he's made. A couple weeks ago, um, I was leaving for work early one morning, and uh, I, I walked outside, and, and we live out on a bunch of land here in Loganville, and walked out to the car, and there was a full moon still kind of shining down across the pastures, and the, the fog was still casted out, and the sun was just starting to creep up, and I remember hearing the birds and watching the squirrels and seeing all the horses uh, graze in the pastures behind us, and I felt like the Lord really kind of grabbed a hold of me and told me to stop. And I set everything down as I was carrying it out to the car, and, and I turned around and I looked, and I just was able to kind of sink in. I felt like the Lord reached around and just grabbed me a hug that morning to start today, and it was so beautiful and so sweet and so needed. And it was only because when we walk outside and when we get to experience the thing God created, I was able to experience and feel the presence of the Lord that morning because we are without excuse for God is in creation and all things that he's made. We are able to physically see God. Don't make excuses. Don't complain about never seeing and experiencing the Father and his presence when all we have to do is quiet, shh, and listen and walk out and embrace the Lord. And it's very important. We have to got to grasp that and we've got to understand that before we can really start taking in his everyday teachings and things to apply to our lives. First main point, live according to the Spirit. We're going to read a lot of Scripture, and then we're going to kind of bounce off some things in between. So um, Romans chapter 6, 11 through 13 says, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument for wickedness. Chapter 8, 5 through 9 says, those who are living according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God nor to his law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It is important to know that if we live in sin, if we live a life that is ruled by our flesh and the desires, that we are willingly killing ourselves every single day. We are willingly committing spiritual suicide every single day when we commit to living by our flesh and the desires that it brings. We cannot, absolutely cannot please and honor God if we're refusing to honor him with our lives. What are ways of living by the flesh? How do we know if we're living by the flesh? Listen to these. Each one of us can identify with one of these. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, out of the message, it says... 
Now, the works of the flesh are evident. They're repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods being idolatry, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an importance to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. How many of us struggle with at least one of those things that was mentioned? Every single one of us, one of these things mentioned, we can relate to as far as being something that can gratify, that we'll indulge in to live according to the flesh. In Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon, he was considered one of the wisest men to ever walk the face of the earth. Solomon gets to a place in his life where he said, there's got to be a little bit something more than just living this life uh, under the Lord. There's got to be something that I'm missing out of. And Solomon takes an extended amount of time to go and try to gratify his flesh and the desires of his flesh each day. Um, and he toils and he uses the thing, he uses the term basically under the sun. He, everything apart from God that is under the sun in the world uh, he goes out and tries to experience and gratify his flesh because he, he felt like he was missing out on something. And what happens? Anybody who's read through it comes out and realizes at the other end, Solomon goes, this is all worthless. We toil and we work and we spend our days seeking something out of what we do and gratifying our flesh for absolutely nothing. He said, it's absolutely pointless. The first year I, I left home and I was playing ball at a pretty big school, I had a, a huge opportunity to, to experience a lot of things that I thought I was missing out on by being brought up in a stable, um, a firm foundation of a home, going to a Christian school. And these things that I was taught growing up and, and brought up to believe and raised in, I thought, there might be something I'm missing out on. Right? Like, there might be something along the line that mom and dad were just trying to keep from me that, that's really kind of fun that they just wanted to suck the joy out of. <laughs> and for a long period of time, there were 99% of the guys that I was around had no desire to honor the Lord, and it was all self-gratification uh, self and flesh-seeking, and I submerged in it for a long time. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something I'm missing out on. And so I sunk in and I, I dove into seeking the desires of my flesh. And I came out one of the emptiest, loneliest, and broken that I'd ever been. I was like Solomon. I said, God, is there something else that I'm missing out on? I got to go out. I want to experience something different, something that satisfy, uh, satisfies my flesh, something that's fun and, and exhilarating and thrilling and so many nights I laid on my bed thinking, what the hell am I doing? What am I doing? Romans 6, 21 says, what benefit did you reap at the time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. What good was it? Did you feel accomplished? Did it better you in your life? Or did it cause problems in your life, your marriage, and your family that you're now running around trying to gather the pieces and put it back together before it's all lost? What benefit did you reap from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those self-seeking gratifications that you chased in the youth of your heart, like, what did it do for you? 
He said, Paul's saying, are the drugs, the porn, the alcohols, the cheap premarital sex, the slander, the self-worship, the worry, the anger, the hate, and the jealousy, is it worth it? He said, is it worth the personal pain, the mental pain, the stresses on your marriage and family? Is it worth submerging in that for a little bit of time just to come out empty and lonely and completely broken? On the flip side of that, Paul says in, in chapter 6, 22 through 23, he says, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result, uh, result is eternal life. For the wages, the cost of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul battled it in chapter 7. He says, I do not understand what I do. He says, for what I want to do, I don't do, and what I do, I don't want to do. Paul's writing all these letters to the church or to these people saying, this is what God commands us to do. But he said, guys, I'm as guilty as anybody. He said, because what I really want to do, I cannot figure out how to do it. And I continue to submerge in things that I don't want to do. It's a battle each day, but it's a battle that we can all win because chapter 6, 13 through 14 says, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every, every part to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer reign, uh, no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. We are not obligated to follow our flesh and the desires it brings. Are they overwhelming at times? Yes. Are they pressure-packed at times? Yes. But are they required to be submerged in? Absolutely not. We can overcome our flesh and the desires it brings by becoming slaves to righteousness and slaves to the Father. We must quit making excuses for our addictions or our sin. We were in men's group a couple weeks ago, and there was a guy, he was sharing, we were just kind of sharing some struggles that we go through, and, and he started sharing some stuff that he continues to be submerged in. He goes, you know what, honestly, I, I just keep doing it because I like it. But at the end of the day, I sit there and I realize, this is not what I should be doing. And we sat there and we talked, and I, I told him, I said, you will continue to live submerged in your flesh and desires as long as your sin is still an option. Right? We keep the alcohol, we keep the drugs, we keep the web browser, we keep our, our gossiping friends close enough so that if, if things get too hard, we can reach out, grab it, pull it in, and satisfy that flesh just for a little bit, and we continue to stay empty. When I was struggling through a lot of stuff in my life as far as purity and stuff goes a couple years ago, it would drive me absolutely insane because like Paul, I'd be like, I don't want to do it, but I would continue to fall back into it. Why? Because it was still an option for me. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, it says, I strike my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified for the prize. I had to come to a realization of my heart that I don't care how hard it is. I don't care if it drives you insane. If you sit in your house by yourself at night, feeling like you're going to implode from the inside out, you have got to make your sin not an option anymore, or you'll continue to run back to it and, uh, and dive back into your self-inflicted pain by trying to satisfy your flesh time and time again. Sin has got to become not an option any longer. You will continue to live in an empty, shattered, and broken Life, if you continue to try to satisfy your flesh, it has to become not an option. It's intense. I strike my body. I make it my slave. Jamie talks about that a lot. 
right? It's, it's intense, but it's got to be something so drastic. It's got to be a mental and a physical picture so drastic that it becomes not an option that I would rather physically have to beat myself into submission to the Lord than to allow my flesh to rule and willingly kill myself every day. Spiritual death every day results in it. We are not stuck. I speak this from experience, not research. This isn't something that I read and I heard another pastor talk about, and, and it's, well, that's pretty good. No, this is experience stuff. This is stuff that I had to do. I had to go through that struggle of, of, of literally having to beat myself and commit to this can't be an option anymore. Otherwise, you'll continue to be submerged in it. Next point. I am no better than anyone else. I am no better than anyone else. How many of us are guilty for looking at another person and quickly jumping to a conclusion in our mind about who they are? What you think? I walked up here today and a lot of you looked at me and you had an assumption you jumped to. A lot of you probably saw me and thought, that is a way better looking version of Tim. And you would have absolutely been right. Good, bad, and different, when we see somebody, we jump to conclusions, right? At work, in the gym, at your office, wherever you are, you see somebody and you jump to a conclusion in your mind. Chapter 11, starting in verse 17, it basically says, don't be cocky or arrogant in the grace and opportunity that we have being brought into Christ. Don't consider yourself better than those who are in the same place as you, for just as we were grafted in, we can be cut out again. Paul basically says, what did you do to deserve the grace and salvation that we have in Christ? So go on, tell me, what did you do to deserve the freedom that you have in Christ to then therefore look on somebody else and condemn them for the way that they look or act because it might be a little bit different than you? We jump to conclusions in our mind quickly. We're going to play a little game, okay? We're going to play three video clips on the screen, all three are videos of, of rain. One of the clips, though, has been edited so that you don't hear the sound of rain. You hear the sound of bacon frying. All three clips are of rain. One of the clips is really be, uh, bacon being fried. And I want you guys to watch all three and tell me which one you think is the bacon being fried. Number one, was it bacon? What about number two? All right, number three? All clips were videos of bacon being fried. <laughs> Not one of those was an actual recorded video of rain. So did you hear what you thought you heard? Well, there you go. Hey, I'm, there you go. 99% of us then did not hear what we thought we heard. We looked at something, we heard something else, and we dictated a belief in our heart of what was true and what was not true. Tazos uh, Zolas, he's a CEO and owner of SoundSnap.com. He's the one that conducted this um, on a TED Talk. 
He said that our brains are conditioned to embrace the lies. He said that we are not looking for accuracy. Our brains are conditioned to believe the lies. And our minds and hearts, if not governed under the rule of the Father, will automatically dictate a belief system in our heart that is most likely not true at all. We are quick to jump to conclusions without ever looking into the source of what it's really coming from. You see something, you hear something, you were told something else, and you dictate a belief system that usually is not true. As believers, we are all grafted in. We are taken from a dead and a dying plant. We were cut off, trusted to have a little bit of life left. The gardener walked over to us. He clipped us. He brought us in, and he plugged us in and grafted us into the tree and plant of eternal life. He said, I believe, I believe in you to have life left. I believe in you to flourish if you were cut off from the dead, dying, decaying plant that you're attached to, and if you're grafted into life in roots of abundance. And we sit here and think we did something about it. And we sit here and think that we get to dictate whether other people deserve to be grafted in with us. He said, you were grafted in, you were cut in. He said, but guess what? You can be cut off again too. You're given an opportunity, but you can have that opportunity taken away too. Chapter 12, 3 through 8, it says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has uh, distributed in each of you. In Christ, though many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. We are not only all grafted in, but once grafted in, we are all given different abilities and gifts, and we are to use all of them in unity with each other to form the body of Christ. We're all grafted in. We're all different, but we're all given gifts. So don't look at somebody else with a different gift and ability that you have and judge them because they're not the same. Because if we were all the same, a body of Christ, fingers, arms, legs, torso, head, if we were all the same, we'd be one jacked up looking body. We are all given in accordance with the Spirit and the gifts of God. We're all given different abilities. And it's important for each one of us to be different. I'm as guilty as anybody else of looking at somebody else and sometimes quickly jump into a conclusion about who they are, what they must be like. But we, it's important. We're all different. We all have to be different for this thing to work. We can't all be the same. So we cannot look at others and cast an opinion or a judgment on them without looking into the source of who they really are. We are not justified through the law. This is one of the most, um, I would say, frequented topics throughout Romans. As you read through Romans, um, the point of a faith-based surrender versus a law and works-based surrender is one of the most uh, frequented and talked about things that Paul continues to come back to. Uh, A little history lesson to the first few times I read Romans, I thought, why in the world does Paul talk about circumcision all the time? Right? And, and it's confusing for some. Um, it, it could be a worry for others. And, but it's like, what, what is this analogy with, with circumcision all the time? And um, basically in the Old Testament, circumcision was a physical representation that someone was following God. 
and not to get too deep into it, but um, it's, it's important to know that, that many dictated their allegiance to God based on their circumcision. Okay, so Paul uses it a lot to push the point of faith-based salvation rather than works-based salvation. Because generally speaking, the Gentile people who Paul was writing to uh, would not have been circumcised. It was more of a Jewish custom. And so for these Gentiles, uh, growing up for the most time, they thought, well, the Jews are the ones that have all the scriptures. We weren't really grafted in with the ability to have the old um, prophets' teachings and stuff. They're all circumcised, and we're a bunch of outcasts. We don't got a whole lot going on. So Paul stresses this point to them heavily that you don't have to be circumcised to be a follower of God. It was an outward representation that an inward transformation had happened, but it wasn't required anymore under the grace of God. So Paul starts out the whole letter by explaining that he is not ashamed of the gospel at all because it is the righteousness of God. And in verse 17 says, a righteousness that is only by faith. Chapter 3, 22 through 31 says the righteousness of God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith and a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The righteousness that we can receive is given solely through faith. We are all the same, just as we talked about earlier. We're all given different abilities and different talents. We're all grafted in, and we're all unique, yes, but only by what God has done in each of us. Jew, Gentile, white, black, male, female, we have all sinned and do not deserve the righteousness that God so freely said, I give this to you. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it talks about why Abraham was credited as a righteous man. It was not because of his works, but starting in verse 3, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. To the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Yet he did not waver, Abraham again, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why, in quotes, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Chapter 9, 30 through 33, it basically says the Gentiles pursued a faith and received it, or pursued a righteousness through faith and received it, but the Jews pursued a righteousness through works and did not gain it. Why? Because one was pursued with open hands, surrender, and faith before God to do something in them, and another one was pressed and worked and really forced upon and ended up coming out with nothing at the end of it. Chapter 5 talks about how just as sin was brought into the world by one man, so justification for all men was brought by the death, burial, and resurrection of one man. So just as eternal death and condemnation came and sin was brought into the world by one man, he said, how much more is the grace available because of the one man that died so that salvation, justification, and righteousness may reign over all men? The absolutely only way we can may, uh, be made righteous is in the sight, or be made righteous in the sight of God, is to live our lives based off of faith, 
Nothing we can ever do will justify us before God. No works-based surrender will ever justify us before the Lord. It has to be with faith. Faith means to have complete trust or confidence in someone or something. I lived a lot of my life um, growing up, I would say, really on a faith that was mostly piggybacked off of my parents. Growing up in a Christian home where dad was in ministry, um, I was homeschooled for a while, so I was with my mom all day. So she grew us up and built that foundation at home of what it looked like to live um, with the Lord. I went to a Christian high school. So my whole life growing up was, was really centered and built around a firm foundation of the Lord. And it, I came to realize once I got older that a lot of my faith— not saying that I, that I didn't love the Lord and that I wasn't really honoring Him with a lot of my youth, but a lot of my faith was works-based and underneath the law, if you will, of my parents and what they, really what they set forth. And it wasn't until I, I came to a place in my life of holy surrender and faith that I really started walking with the Lord. A lot of us growing up in either a legalistic background, growing up um, maybe as a youth, uh, kids growing up in a firm Christian home, it's easy to get sucked into the do's and don'ts of the law that is placed before you. This is how you should live. And very rarely at times do we actually live a faith that is a full surrender and a righteousness that is through faith and not works. We have got to quit trying to work for our way into favor with God. Checking a list is way more demanding than waking up each and every day and saying, God, I surrender everything I have to you. We will go extra lengths to check our Jesus box and often doing it for the wrong reason altogether. It is a lot easier to wake up and say, God, I fully surrender to you. I can't do this on my own. I can't live today. I can't go to my job. I can't honor my wife. I can't raise my kids. I can't pursue other people. I can't do any of this if it's workspace. If I'm doing it just to simply check off a box, one, my heart's not in the right spot, so I'm not going to do it freely, and I'm not going to do it really justice before you. And two, it is so demanding trying to do all of this in a workspace instead of waking up and saying, God, I surrender to you today. I surrender my job. I surrender my marriage. I surrender my finances. I surrender my heart to you. You try to go out and start your day on your own, and it quickly can spiral out of control if you're not careful. Yeah. I have found that the days where even when I'm spending my time with the Lord, if it is quick and if it is rushed through, even then my day is a lot less at peace than when I wake up and say, all right, Lord, it's either me and you or it's nothing today. I don't want to walk out this door if it's not in full surrender and trust in you. And yet we walk out the door so often and we say, God, I just want to check off this stuff. How many Christians, Christians go out on each day and just try to check a box? They say, well, I went to church twice this month. That's pretty good. Um, I served at a, at a homeless shelter a couple months ago. That's got to, well, check that box. That's got to do me for a little while. I got a couple extra bucks in my pocket. I, I can still go out and, 
and, and do what I want with the leftover money. I'll throw a $5 bill in the offering plate. And we say, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. I fully give everything I got. And we penny pinch everything we do, not just financially, but in our lives, how we treat people, the time we give to the Lord, we check a box. The only way that we have true righteousness and seen as whole before the Lord is in faith. It's not a cheap way out. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you don't, you just get to do nothing. Oh, Lord, I'm surrendering to you. No, I mean, there's still things now we're proactive with our surrender. But it's not about checking a box to gratify yourself. It's about surrendering to see the Lord do a work in and through you. I'm going to close here. Nick, if you guys want to come back out. If you have to justify to someone why you're a Christian, your heart is probably not in the right place. Again, like I said, well, I go to church and, and I serve sometimes and, and I'll tithe every now and again when, when I think my bank is padded enough and, and I'll do all these. If you have to justify to someone why you're a Christian and a follower of the Lord, your heart's probably not in the right place. Scripture says they will know us by the fruit that we bear. If you walk up to a tree, you don't have to analyze it. You don't have to ask it. You don't have to pluck off its fruit and cut it open to look at the inside to see if the inside looks like the outside. You look at a tree and you know what it is by the fruit that it bears. And yet if you walk and you cut many of us open at the core of who you are, the inside looks nothing like the outside. Why? Because there's no faith at the center of the fruit that we claim that we bear. We put on a front and a cover that looks nothing on the inside like it does on the outside. Our core and the fruit we bear has to be a direct representation of who we are. They know us by the fruit. Faith only will justify us. We must humble ourselves, get on our knees, and desperately seek the face of the Father. We have to quit trying to satisfy our flesh, comparing ourselves to other people, and live in a self-seeking, works-based life. We all can find the peace in life we desire, but only, only, only found in a faith-based surrender.